Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. Today I'm very happy to have Dr. Andrew Meekdot back on the line and we are going to be talking about Ukraine and the situation between Ukraine and Russia again. And first of all, thank you for coming back on the show. My pleasure, Chelsea. Thank you. So we've had Dr. Mikta on the show a number of times, and he's always a very favorited guest when it comes to this topic because he is a great expert on this. And just for our listeners, he is a professor of international studies at Rhodes College. So let's just start out with how about giving me an overview of what's been taking place in the Ukraine for the last couple of months. I mean, there's certain things we've seen on the news. Unfortunately, the flight um, MH17, um, lots of violence happening in the region. So give us a little bit of a brief overview of some of the main things that have been happening. Uh, the most important thing, and, and again, we focused on the tragedy of the Malaysian uh, Boeing 777, and that shook uh, both uh, the public in, in the United States and in Europe and created kind of a greater awareness of what's happening over there. But it's really a, a side story, uh, notwithstanding the horrific human tragedy that it, uh, that, that it represents, to the actual very rapid escalation of what I today would simply call uh, a war. I mean, this is, we keep talking about separatists, uh, uh, we keep talking about, uh, you know, Ukrainian counter-terrorist operations, as the government likes to, to, to call it. But in reality, this is a Russia-supplied uh, military engagement on the side of the so-called separatists with a lot of heavy equipment, advisors, military personnel, quite frankly, going in to, to fight in the eastern provinces, and a very determined effort on the part of the Ukrainian government, on the other hand, to actually win uh, on the battlefield. Uh, actually, today, as, as uh, and we'll probably talk about the humanitarian convoy that the Russians are trying to insert into Ukraine, but as of today, the Ukrainian government has managed to reduce uh, the areas of uh, uh, resistance, the, the rebels in, in the provinces in Donetsk and Luhansk. It's actually it, it's separated uh, two areas, so that it's driven a wedge, creating almost like an encirclement of those forces. But that is by no means uh, an assured victory for two reasons. Number one, uh, the Russians continue to send in heavy equipment, personnel and supplies uh, across the border, which remains un, uh, remains open. It's not sealed despite all, all, all of the requests. But also what happens is almost like a whack-a-mole game. Uh, the Ukrainian forces come in and clear an area and they move on to, to uh, reduce another another area of resistance and the, the fighters begin to seep back in. Uh, or using heavy equipment begin to, to push and shell uh, the Ukrainian forces. For example, the fighting that's been ongoing today along a highway connecting Donetsk uh, with the Russian border, where, where the uh, rebels were using uh, the Grad missile systems, very heavy surface-to-surface uh, uh, -surface, uh, batteries that are supplied by the Russians. So all of, all of that means that we're looking at an escalating conflict, but a conflict that, that is beginning to look as though the Ukrainian government may actually prevail and regain control uh, over the uh, two, two remaining a rebel areas. And what that also means is that you have increasingly a refugee uh, situation where people are trying to escape, get out of Donetsk in particular, uh, those people who, who have a place to go and have some resources to actually uh, resettle. And that poses for, uh, for President Putin of Russia a dilemma of what to do in a very fundamental way. Uh, in the event the Ukrainian uh, government uh, is compelled to accept some sort of a ceasefire, 
Putin will have accomplished uh, uh, most of his goals in that he would have controlled uh, the territory that's now claimed by the rebels and would be in a position to move uh, forward uh, in, in, in another stage of the conflict. But if the rebels are actually uh, uh, being reduced and pushed out and destroyed, then he has to decide whether he will launch an all-out military campaign uh, to prop them up. And that would mean a very rapid escalation of the conflict into a very traditional state-on-state -state confrontation without any pretense that this is a hybrid war. And yesterday we saw a lot of reports coming out of Donetsk about um, the Ukraine stepping up its military operations there. Um, there was a report of a high-security prison um, during this bombing, let's put it this way, um, air assault, should we say, high-security prison was hit. And there was reports of prisoners escaping and as we talked a little bit before the show, you mentioned some had come back. Um, what was that like, and and what was the main reasons to do this assault uh, yesterday? Again, and you have to remember that both sides claim that the attacks occurred uh, from the other side. I mean, we have the same situation uh, that you would have in any sort of guerrilla-like uh, conflict. Uh, the, the lines are blurry, uh, missiles are fired, uh, the, the prison that was hit in this particular case, uh, but we're also talking about apartment buildings, homes that are being caught in crossfire. Um, the Ukrainian military is not the best equipped military. I mean, I've been advocating for a long period of time now, ever since the, the fighting has escalated, that the West should step up with military assistance uh, for the Ukrainian uh, army. Uh, mind you, I'm not saying that, that we should engage militarily, meaning NATO or U.S. forces. Uh, none of that. But what I'm saying and what I'm advocating is to uh, equip and train and provide intelligence and provide the weapons that the Ukrainian government has been asking for. Uh, so a lot of the issues that you see is not just that you have fierce fighting, but you have a lot of cases of friendly fire casualties. You've, get, uh, you've got a lot of miscommunication. Let's look at the tragedy of the, uh, of the uh, 777, the Malaysian aircraft. Uh, as we know today, most likely it was fired upon because the uh, rebels on the ground thought they were targeting a military transport, not realizing that they were targeting a commercial aircraft. So you're not talking about a highly developed, highly disciplined, highly professional force. Um, what you have is, is uh, a situation now, especially in Donetsk, uh, where, where there is uh, less and less power. There are problems with getting clean water into the city. This is becoming a hum humanitarian issue, which brings me to another interesting point, uh, the unfolding story over the past couple of days and, and actually ongoing as we speak today. Uh, the Russians are seizing on the notion of a humanitarian emergency developing in eastern Ukraine to insert uh, what they call a, a humanitarian assistance convoy. Uh, they've uh, they've uh, repainted uh, 280 uh, military trucks, the Kamas trucks, they're all painted white. Uh, uh, they put, uh, they claim they put food and, and, and water and other uh, relief equipment and, and supplies onto those trucks and uh, plan to uh, drive those into the areas of the conflict. Now, initially, and there's a lot of confusion about it, initially uh, this was uh, supposedly cleared with the Ukrainian government and it was supposed to be administered by, by Red Cross. Now, the Red Cross, uh, as, as far as I can tell as of now, claims that it does not know what is on those trucks. The Ukrainian government says that it will not allow the trucks to cross unless they've been uh, cleared by their customs, unloaded, reloaded on, on Red Cross vehicles, and, and basically screened to make sure that this is not uh, an attempt by Russia to 
to use a, a term of one of the government officials of Ukraine, to bring in a Trojan horse into the territory, to preposition uh, equipment, bring in supplies and whatnot. But there's another dimension here. We've got an unfolding humanitarian crisis. There's no question about it. There, there are civilians caught in an ongoing and escalating war. But we have a question then of what would happen if those uh, Russian trucks actually entered Ukraine. And I am very skeptical as to whether uh, the Russian personnel would submit to the Ukrainian border controls or Ukrainian government officials. Uh, so we, this could be, in effect, the so-called humanitarian uh, uh, exercise that uh, President Putin is engaging in. And Foreign Minister Lavrov claims is, is uh, worked out and agreed by everybody. But this could be actually the step one in the next phase uh, of uh, trying to uh, buttress the Russian uh, position in the territory because the Ukrainian military is reducing resistance with every passing day. It's incredibly tough fighting. What we have to understand, uh, and we don't see a lot of this in our own media here in the United States, but if you, if you, if you look at the Ukrainian media, if you look at the Russian media, uh, or, or even media in Central Europe, you will see heavy artillery being fired, you'll see howitzers going off, you will see surface-to-surface -surface missiles, surface-to-air missiles. This is, this is a heavy industrial type of war that's going on essentially in areas that are populated, and when you think of Donetsk, very densely populated. So going back to this so-called humanitarian convoy, you keep hearing, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen until they get to the border. As you mentioned, it's ongoing at this moment. Um, but you keep hearing the idea that this is a pretext for mili uh, further military buildup in the Ukraine. And as you mentioned, there's this whole if of what is going to happen once they get to the border. So let's look at certain ideas and criteria and happenings that might take place when they get to the border. And there's so much bad blood between Russia and Ukraine at this point that the thought of them just breezing across the border, <laughs> it, it's a little bit unrealistic in my mind. So I was wondering if we could look at that. Sure. Um, the longer this war goes on, uh, the more animosity, and, and I'm using this very judiciously, but actually uh, hate is going to develop. Uh, one casualty of this conflict for the Russians is that they are buying increasingly unyielding enmity from the Ukrainian population in central and western Ukraine. Uh, with, with all the history of, of Russian domination and, and you know, Ukraine being incorporated into, uh, into the Russian state, essentially uh, the kind of end of a Cossack or Ukrainian national dream, if you will, uh, following the separation uh, from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Nonetheless, the Ukrainians and the Russians maintained a larger sense of shared identity and, and, and lived in, in, in a very common culture. Even, even for those who were very nationalistic, there was not as much of, a, of an animosity that you see today if you talk to people. So that's one thing that's beginning to happen. And therefore, I'm incredibly skeptical uh, that the Ukrainian population or the Ukrainian government would welcome an intrusion of such a large, massive Russian convoy that's essentially unscreened and unchecked. Now, let me put this in context of something else that's been happening. We've had repeated warnings from uh, NATO, from NATO Secretary General most recently, about uh, the likelihood, ever-growing likelihood, of direct Russian invasion, cross-border entry into Ukraine. And we get different estimates as to how many 
troops have been massed on the border. The Ukrainian government uh, speaks of 40,000 plus. Uh, NATO numbers are about half that. Uh, both agree that there is heavy equipment that's being prepositioned. Um, the convoy, the, the fact that the convoy is entering Ukraine, assuming that it would enter, and we don't know where it would go, but if it enters and then finds itself, for example, on the territory that's not directly controlled uh, by, by the Ukrainian government, uh, how do you get those trucks to leave? I mean, how, I'm trying to imagine a German diplomat or an OSC official racing to, to those, uh, to those uh, people saying, you know, you really need to, have to, you really need to leave and, and, and move to a different location. How do, you, how do you force them to do that? You're, in effect, creating a qualitatively different situation. Uh, on the ground, you're inserting a significant Russian presence. And I am not prejudging here whether you're talking about uh, humanitarian relief being on those trucks or military equipment being on those trucks. We simply don't know uh, at this point. But in whatever capacity, you're changing the balance on the ground when you're putting a large, uh, quote-unquote, humanitarian presence, uh, uh, Russian, Russian presence into the Ukrainian uh, state. And at the same time, you're retaining the option than uh, to use military power, for example, to assist them in the event of a crisis. Uh, I think when the Ukrainians talk about a potential Trojan horse, that's the scenario they're talking about. Uh, a situation in which the Russian government would claim that people who went in with a convoy to provide relief are being now threatened uh, by the Ukrainian military or by whatever situation that develops on the ground, and now Russia needs to move in uh, to assist them. I'm, I'm just building a hypothetical scenario here to show you the level of concern. Um, one last thing. <clears throat> Putin has absolutely sky-high approval ratings in Russia today. He's being viewed as one of the great uh, leaders that has restored Russian pride, Russian power, Russian respect. Uh, and he presents a very clear alternative uh, to what he deems to be the decadent West that Russia has to contend with. If he were to yield today and say cut a deal of some kind that would not include maintaining Russian presence in eastern Ukraine and protecting what he uh, and many have called the Novorossiya, the new Russia, and I will say a few words about this in just one second, then he would, he would take tremendous risks politically at home. Uh, when, it, when it comes to his popular support and his ability to control the situation in Russia. He has escalated Russian great nationalism to the point that he cannot simply back away and say, no, I was just kidding. And one, one important thing you hear more and more frequently in Russian uh, commentary, this area of eastern Ukraine uh, referred to as Novorossiya or, or New Russia. Uh, it's an area that was uh, transferred uh, to Ukraine uh, in the 1920s, it's, uh, it, it was something that was claimed from the Ottoman Empire in the early stages of the, of the uh, century of the conflict of, Ru of the Russian-Turkish uh, competition. And Putin, I think it was in March, when he made a speech saying he doesn't understand why uh, the new Russia has been severed from the Russian core. So there is an underlying narrative in all of this of rebuilding the great Russian state. And what that means is reaching out into areas such as Crimea that has already been brought in. Now we have the eastern periphery of Ukraine. And I am looking with great interest, for example, to Odessa, uh, if you move south, to see um, whether that also fits into, into Putin's uh, larger program. Um, this is a situation in which I, quite frankly, 
do not see an easy segue out uh, for the government of Vladimir Putin without a significant loss of face. And we get ourselves caught up in these conversations. How do we, how do we create conditions that would allow him to back out? I quite frankly don't see them unless you're willing to compromise and surrender the future of Ukrainian sovereignty, and that would dramatically change the balance of power in Europe. Yeah, that was actually one of my questions with this Putin and this nationalism that's taking wildfire, so to speak. I mean, there really doesn't seem to be any way to go back before all of this turmoil between Ukraine and Russia started. It just seems like at this point, the future is so uncertain. And how do you, as you said, how do you bring something to the table which both sides are happy with and can go on from there? I think you're looking at a stalemated situation at this point. Uh, I think the Russians believe that they that they are holding essentially the strings to control the crisis. Most of the Western policy has been reactive. We've imposed sanctions, increasingly tough sanctions, uh, but we have not at the same time provided military assistance to Ukraine of the kind that, that would be uh, making any sort of uh, thought of Russia invading, taking over, possibly even rolling further deeper into Ukraine uh, and overthrowing the government in Kiev, um, something that, that they would have to think about twice. Um, the kind of assistance we've offered, we've offered some night vision, we've offered uh, meals ready to eat, bulletproof vests, helmets, you know, this kind of stuff. But we have not offered the weapons that the Ukrainian military needs in order to uh, get across a very clear message to Russia that the price of trying to overrun Ukraine would be extremely high. So the deterrent element is not there. So what, what are the likely scenarios here? And, and actually, why, why, why is Ukraine so important to, to Putin's imperial project? I would argue it's, it's uh, for the very simple reason that Ukraine is the quintessential gateway between Eurasia and Europe. Uh, actually, if you look at the etymology of the word Ukraine, Ukraina, uh, it, it stands for literally the borderland or borderlands. At least that's the most traditional way of explaining the, the term. It's the transition area, if you will. The name of the state was derived from the original word Ukraina, the borderlands that, that, that uh, we knew historically uh, during the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and then the rising Russian imperial power. So um, to put it very bluntly, without controlling Ukraine, uh, Russia cannot restore its great power, imperial power position vis-a-vis -vis Europe. It, it will not have the, the, the kind of assets in place that will not be positioned geostrategically right at, at Europe's doorsteps. Um, hands for Putin, this is, this is about what kind of a country Russia is supposed to be. I mean, the, the establishment of an independent Ukrainian state in the initial post-Cold War uh, years gave us all hope that Russia was going to shift in the direction of becoming more of a traditional nation-state. With, of course, with, with huge question marks here, because um, the last 300 years of, of Russian history, if you look at it, uh, it's all but impossible to say where does the, the, you know, the modern national Russian state really begin, where does the empire end? Um, if you look at, uh, at the other great empires in, in uh, recent European history, you know, the British Empire ended, the British went back home. Nobody is questioning where the boundaries of the... Of the uh, what they used to call Great Britain, what is now the United Kingdom, uh, are actually located. The French 
had some issues trying to actually give up Algeria and, and, and ended up with a very brutal war, you know, pulled out of Indochina. But in the final analysis, the homeland, the, na the nation state uh, for the French and for the British, uh, for, for the great imperial powers, was never in dispute. Uh, if you look at, at how the Russian statehood evolved, uh, it evolved in this imperial context. So if you want to think of Russia as a great power, and I think that's how Putin approaches it, he sees the need to restore the great Russian writ on the periphery uh, of the Russian ethnic core as absolutely imperative. And, and so the kind of hopes that we had that Russia would move in the direction of becoming a more, quote-unquote, normal nation-state, as we would recognize it, it would democratize, it would still be a, a federated uh, state, but it would be a state that would no longer have this imperial drive. I think with the arrival of Putin and Putinism, and I'm using this term on purpose, I think Putinism is a set of ideological assumptions about Russia's place in the world and its relationship uh, to the West. Putinism has obliterated uh, that notion of, of, of Russia after communism evolving into a, a more kind of recognizable uh, democratic state. <clears throat> and Ukraine has become the battleground for that. If the Russians don't get Ukraine, uh, I think in the long run, Putin's power, Putin's concept, the whole idea of Putinism, uh, will eventually implode and crumble. But how realistic is this idea that Putin and his government has about returning Russia to the great empire? I mean, you've got this assault on Ukraine, but after Ukraine, what then? I mean, is that a realistic goal on Putin's part? Especially with the international community. I mean, there's a point where someone's going to have to say, okay, they're, they're crossing into other borders. If, if this goes, continues on with the Ukraine and then goes further, I mean, there's some point that the international community has to get much more involved and put a stop to something like that. I see, Chelsea, this is where my skepticism is going to show. I hold very little hope for the so-called international community to do much of anything. Uh, and I think Putin is banking on this. Uh, when I say much of anything, I say much of anything beyond economic uh, sanctions, beyond condemnations, resolutions, and things of that sort. And I think uh, Putin's whole uh, policy, his, his whole approach to rebuilding this, this near-imperial project rests on the assumption that there will be very little pushback in, in hard power terms, in terms of military uh, uh, resistance to what he is doing. Um, how far is this going to go? I can actually name a number of places where, in my view, he is likely to turn uh, when, when and if Ukraine becomes uh, a done deal, so to speak. That is, if Ukraine is either brought under direct control to some sort of uh, uh, you know, Russian puppet regime, for example, um, or dismembered and uh, part of it incorporated into the Russian Federation and, and part of it kind of remaining uh, in, a, in a state of de facto perpetual chaos. Um, places to go, Moldova, we've got a frozen conflict in Transnistria right on the periphery. Uh, that's another place. Uh, very likely and very possibly, uh, more and more pressure will be exercised in the direction of Central Asia. In fact, the Russians, uh, as, we were, as we were focusing on the conflict in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin has brought in both Belarus and Kazakhstan into a Eurasian economic union. In effect, part of the larger project, which in my view will, will continue to evolve into uh, more of a political union down the line. So, uh, and remember that you've got a large ethnic diaspora, Russian diaspora in Kazakhstan. Uh, but the real kicker would be 
what I think would be the ultimate test of all of this, and that is the Baltic states. Because the Baltic states are in a different category, and what I mean by that, of course, I mean especially Estonia and Latvia. Uh, both Estonia and Latvia have large uh, ethnic communities that are Russian, Russian-speaking. Uh, they can be uh, quite easily, uh, I believe, uh, used by Putin to create uh, tension and turmoil, to, to essentially follow the same ethnic uh, conflict path that you've seen in Crimea and now you're seeing in eastern Ukraine. The only difference here is this, and it's a fundamental difference, that both uh, Latvia and Estonia are NATO members. So in the event you have trouble uh, inside those countries and pressure coming in from the outside, it would be absolutely obvious that the president of Estonia, for example, would ask NATO uh, to act for security uh, guarantees to be implemented. I'm talking Article 4 and Article 5, right, uh, in the event that something like this happens. And if NATO failed to respond, uh, that would be the most devastating blow to the cohesion of the NATO alliance. This would be basically the, uh, the ultimate check, and I think the ultimate uh, prize for Vladimir Putin, that would be to hollow out, to, to uh, implode the NATO alliance from within. Of course, if NATO responded, on the other hand, he would retain the possibility to pull back, say that this was uh, an operation that was taking place inside inside those uh, countries that Russia was not instigating those. Of course, sounds pretty thin in a moment of an all-out crisis. The risks would be profoundly greater. As a result, what you have today, as a result of Ukraine, if you follow, for example, President Obama's visit to uh, Warsaw in, in, uh, on June 4th of, uh, of this year and the, the reassurances that he has issued, uh, the Baltic states, Poland, Romania, countries, Bulgaria even, um, are now increasingly strongly demanding actual U.S. military presence on their territory. They want U.S. and NATO bases uh, to be uh, established uh, as essentially tripwires, as assurances that in the event uh, Russia were to move, uh, the United States would all be all but guaranteed to engage because our forces would be engaged as well as, as other NATO members. This will be the bone of contention at the upcoming NATO summit uh, in Wales. Will, will the West actually, uh, when I say the West, I mean the Western part of the alliance, will the more traditional states uh, like Germany or France or the UK accept the idea that there should be uh, new NATO installations placed uh, in, that, in, in those countries, in the Baltic states and in Poland in particular? And when the, will the United States go along with it? Or are we likely to end up with uh, prepositioning of equipment, more exercises uh, and things of that kind? but not real military presence. The argument you hear from the Baltic states and from the Poles uh, is that uh, the, the NATO troops should be where the threats are. Uh, those threats are not in Germany, where most of the U.S. military presence remains. Those threats are now in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, you know, uh, Slovakia, going down the line. Um, but to make that decision, and this is, I think, the most important part of this conversation, when you say... Why doesn't the West react more forcefully to it? Uh, because I believe there is no public support nor elite consensus to raise the stakes in a possible confrontation uh, with what remains uh, a nuclear superpower and what remains, however we like it uh, or not, the energy superpower when it comes to Europe's uh, energy needs. And the Russians don't make any bones uh, about... Uh, uh, their assertiveness. Uh, there are some who even go so far as Vladimir Zhirinovsky, one of the 
you know, blowhard kind of rabble rousers of, of Russian politics, um, saying in effect that World War III is already on, on underway and that Ukraine uh, and Poland and the Baltic states, they will all suffer the consequences. I mean, that's the kind of rhetoric that, that you have almost on the fringes. But by and large, there is this sense since 2007 and 2008 uh, that, that Russia is now uh, determined to resist uh, being, uh, being um, uh, treated the way that uh, Putin claims was uh, denigrating its great power status, was underrating it. Um, he actually called the disintegration of the Soviet Union to be the greatest geostrategic tragedy of the late 20th century. So that tells you something. So looking at the international community, how much faith does the Ukraine and the other surrounding countries have in NATO? I mean, the international community was set up to put stops to instances like this. So what is the general feeling about the international community, NATO, and so forth, as far as something that could protect them or couldn't? I mean, has the faith been lost? Is there still some faith? You know, the larger question, and that's, uh, we're kind of getting off Ukraine and off Russia, but we're getting into a kind of a larger debate uh, or discussion of what is happening all around us. We were kind of joking before we started this recording that any place you turn, you see the world going to hell in a handbasket very quickly. Very much so. Very much so. And, uh, you know, you've got the implosion of MENA. You've got the third war in Iraq for all practical purposes. President Obama may claim uh, that it is not and that we're using limited airstrikes and sending advisors. I'm very skeptical that that's going to stop uh, the Islamic State from moving forward. Uh, I think we'll end up having to put troops on the ground if we want to get serious about blocking them. We have uh, the situation in Asia where the Chinese are in the process of of uh, repositioning themselves, challenging the U.S. domination in Western Pacific. And a lot of, of our allies are growing very concerned or are looking at their own defense needs. And, of course, you have this situation in Europe, in Eurasia, on the periphery um, of NATO. Uh, and at the same time, the West uh, continues, with very few exceptions. There are some countries in Europe that still uh, spend money on defense that have actually increased uh, defense spending. Um, little Estonia, for example, Poland, for example, those kind of uh, countries. But by and large, the, uh, the West has, has been disarming. Um, the ugly truth of the whole crisis in Ukraine is that while we debate the political uh, you know, efficacy of getting involved, how far we should go, we're not talking about the pragmatic aspects of it, that our forces, relative to our commitments, are str stretched incredibly thin. <clears throat> and again, you use the term international community. Um, I think the only real forces that you have in place right now to do anything in the event of direct uh, military aggression are the United States and uh, those of our NATO allies that are willing to actually uh, spend the money, put up the money, get the equipment and deploy. And notice that I'm not saying all of NATO. I'm not simply saying NATO. NATO today is... is uh, very much uh, divided on uh, on what it should be doing, how it should be operating. Remember, it's also the alliance that's coming out of Afghanistan. Um, a lot of the participants in the ISAF mission uh, believe that the end of Afghanistan will essentially allow them uh, to cut their defense spending even further. So the question is, what would we be doing 
and with what in the event we're confronted with an all-out military conflict. The situation in Ukraine is incredibly dangerous for one reason. Uh, it can escalate very, very quickly. Uh, if the Ukrainian government proves unable uh, to contain the situation, doesn't have the military wherewithal to actually uh, put down the rebellion and deter potential Russian aggression, um, you will most likely see uh, a frozen conflict and there's a horrible term that we've used, but essentially low intensity, uh, flaring up kind of a black hole environment where um, the government will not be able to control the territory, will not be able to administer it, uh, where the borders will be porous and where the Russians will be able to engage at will. But at the same time, if the situation moves in, in the direction of bringing the Russians into the picture uh, and an all-out conventional war between Ukraine um, and Russia, and, you know, a war that clearly will favor the Russian side today in terms of what the Russians can put on the ground. Um, you're talking about an, a state-on-state -state war on Europe's periphery in Eastern Europe. I wrote a piece today for um, my uh, commentary on Europe and security in the American interest, uh, essentially arguing with the title, East, Eastern Europe is Europe, meaning that uh, th these developments on the periphery of Europe and Eastern Europe, uh, regardless of how we, we may want to disregard them or look the other way or try to limit the cost of them, they're already reshaping the security of the entire continent. And if you have an ongoing war that's going to drag on, or worse yet, if you have an all-out escalation of a military conflict between Russia and Ukraine, uh, then, then the world has become much, much more dangerous very, very quickly. Um, and at the same time, as we were talking about it, the United States is re-engaging in Iraq, we have uh, all of the Middle East, in effect, imploding. The Israelis are con conducting their campaign in Gaza, so that is raising also the stakes over there. And you've got the Asian Asian conflict, uh, uh, Asian tensions. I'm sorry, uh, uh, deepening. Um, this is this is uh, a kind of overall global instability of of the magnitude that, quite frankly, we have not seen not just since the end of the Cold War but probably since the end of the Second World War, as though the entire system uh, that structured the security environment in the world is up for grabs. I highly agree with you on that. So once again, looking at the international community, so to speak, there was recently, it came out that Russia and Egypt are going to be boosting their trade ties, which also points to this international community helping Russia, so helping, I mean, by inter by more trade ties, you're getting more funding to Russia and so forth, and this idea of the international community being responsible or irresponsible with what is playing out between Russia and Ukraine, or maybe bigger if this continues on and spreads to other parts of the Eastern European region. So we also have this idea that this trade agreement between Russia and Egypt also is almost a way of Putin... Um, using U.S. weakness in the Middle East and North Africa to kind of say, ha-ha, look at I've, I've started this trade agreement with Egypt. So looking at the trade agreement with Egypt and the bigger picture, I know we talked about other countries in our last talk that still had a lot of financial deals going on with Russia. The international community, to me, needs to seem, well, to me, they seem to need to be responsible for what is taking place and who they're funding and helping um, let's talk about this idea a little bit. 
Yeah, and you know, I wish it were so. I mean, I wish um, you could you could actually make an argument that we have a sense of a larger stake in the system. Uh, what we're seeing today is that with the progressive U.S. disengagement, because I don't think there is another word to describe what we've seen over the last several years. We've seen the United States progressively trying to disengage from several military conflicts. You know, President Obama came into office promising to end the war in Iraq. Uh, the good war, bad war narrative that we had at that time, the bad war was Iraq. Um, the good war that supposedly the Bush administration neglected because it did not, uh, because it went into Iraq was Afghanistan. So we're going to double down in, on Afghanistan, finish it up and, and uh, pull out of Iraq as quickly as possible. Uh, Libya was a very good example of, of uh, this kind of new strategy that was being put in place. I don't know even if, if it was a strategy. I think it was essentially the desire to uh, dial down American presence in the world. Um, the kind of famous, now notorious uh, statement that the United States would lead from behind <clears throat> when it comes to the NATO alliance. We're seeing the consequences of that. We're seeing the consequences of the United States uh, losing a lot of uh, our credibility, quite frankly. Syria was a seminal event here, in my view. I think the way we've uh, mishandled the Syrian crisis uh, has, has encouraged the Russians, has actually allowed them to, A, in effect, get their foot back into the Middle East to a degree that, that it was almost impossible only a few years ago. Um, and because of that, uh, the Russians... The Russians are coming in not only into into Egypt in, in terms of what you're describing. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you see weapons deals or other trade deals coming in into uh, Iraq. Uh, the Russians are a sponsor of the Assad regime in Syria. So you've got uh, the, the kind of uh, competition between the United States uh, and Russia now reaching beyond Eastern Europe, going into other parts of the world. Um, there isn't anybody out there that wants to pick up the slack, quite frankly. Uh, and when we launched this, the Libyan campaign, we, uh, we overthrew the Gaddafi regime. Uh, but then, in effect, we pulled out. This is the dilemma of how do, what do you really do? What kind of partnerships do you need to build in the region to be able to, uh, to you know, reduce your, your cost of maintaining a presence internationally? And I don't think the administration has found a formula. We have a very reactive uh, foreign policy today. Um, Ukraine is one case that we have seen. Uh, when the Obama administration came into office in 2008, there was a lot of talk about a reset with Russia. Remember the, the famous button that Hillary Clinton took to Foreign Minister Lavrov? Uh, there was talk about the new engagement strategy, working with difficult states. Uh, and there was also less emphasis on our relations with Europe. Not that 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 relationship was disavowed. I mean, the transatlantic link always remained uh, part of, of U.S. strategy and it had always been uh, the key to, to the NATO relationship. But there was a sense, and I think the Europeans realized that, that the administration was looking elsewhere, hence this unfortunate pivot to Asia, you know, the rebalancing or whatever. Um, we, the administration is now discovering that none of this, in effect, is possible. Uh, you cannot have a reorientation of policy to Asia uh, while the gateway to Eurasia is in effect in flames. If you don't have a stable environment on Europe's periphery, um, you can't even try then to build consensus in the NATO alliance for, for a greater global 
mission that you need to engage in. Um, look what happened to the Arab Spring. I mean, uh, I remember the heady days when everybody was proclaiming democracy on the march, and, and very, very quickly it's become an Arab winter, quite frankly. Uh, it's become a, a Middle East unraveling into this kind of sectarian uh, religious violence uh, that all of us have been warning about. I, uh, I, I think that uh, the inability to, to maintain the modicum of stability of the post-colonial system in the Middle East has now unleashed the forces that are almost impossible to control without a major military commitment. All of this happening at the time when post-2008 uh, as the administration uh, was coming into office, we wanted to focus on our domestic situation, as President Obama would say, you know, nation building at home and things of that, of that kind. What I find striking is that uh, the, the credibility of the United States, and I see this in my travels quite a bit, uh, even, even in the countries that are historically incredibly pro-American and have always been pro-American, uh, there's that sense of doubt uh, about our staying power. And whether we're good, uh, you know, when we when we give our word and whatnot, um, I think we are. I think that skepticism is reflecting more of a of a of a kind of political, uh, you know, fatigue that has has developed uh, over the past several years, looking at at changes in U.S. policies and a kind of reactive uh, um, behavior of, of the Obama administration to a lot of these crises. But nonetheless, it's the reality of it. Uh, credibility is a very precious currency in international affairs. Uh, I've read recently a piece where a, an analyst claimed that actually credibility is highly overrated in international affairs and whatnot. I disagree. Uh, it's the currency of being able to actually shape foreign policy without having to resort to force. Um, today, we have uh, difficulty, quite frankly, even... Uh, creating clear alignments uh, within uh, our own community. I mean, if you look at uh, the relationship with the key European allies of the United States, uh, just remember how difficult it was to get some consensus on sectoral sanctions against Russia, and even how each particular state would come in with its own set of priorities. Uh, we can do this, but we don't want to do that because we have business deals uh, with the Russians in this area or that area. The fact is that the Russians have, have bought into uh, European economies over the past uh, 10, 15 years uh, very effectively. And there's a very strong uh, business lobby now in, in uh, Western Europe that does not want the sanctions regime to be put in place in a way that it would cause damage to their uh, business deals with Russia. I mean, let me give you one example, which is almost like this epitome uh, of the problems we have uh, organizing consensus and getting people to do the right thing. I mean, <clears throat> we have ongoing war, we have direct threats to uh, the security of Europe's periphery, uh, and yet the French government is going ahead with the sale of the Mistral landing ship to Russia that it contracted for, actually four vessels that are supposed to be delivered to Russia, and those ships are supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, what, what is their purpose in the Baltic uh, sea or on the Black Sea. These are uh, assault platforms. If you want to plan an invasion of a, of a uh, country in the Baltic Sea, the Mistral comes very handy. Uh, the German government has only recently decided 
to uh, put a stop to uh, military contracts and projects they had with Russia. The British had over 200 uh, licenses, out, out, outstanding licenses for military deals uh, with the Russians. The amount of business that the Russian uh, businesses were doing in Europe, in banking and energy and other areas, all of that is something that, that the, the individual governments would be very reluctant to give up. So, so that is the issue. The, the, the inability to develop a consensus response to agree on what the priorities of the alliance should be. And I think one of the fundamental reasons why that... Hi, everyone. We had a little bit of a technical problem with a call drop, but we are back. And we're going to wrap up the show because it's been going on for a bit. But to wrap up the show, um, one of our listeners had a question for you, Dr. Mikta. So I'm going to quote it here. Uh, his question was, pro-Russian militants are losing and sending arms to them, and that does not work anymore. So what do you think Russia will do in this case? As I said at the very beginning of this program, uh, I believe that Putin has invested himself so much into this near-imperial project. And the eastern uh, provinces of Ukraine are part of this uh, Novorossiya, this new Russia, uh, ideal, that if there is a sense that the Ukrainian government is going to prevail militarily on the battlefield, as, as it looks like it will, it, most likely there will be a direct military intervention, whether it's going to be troops rolling across the border or some form of uh, face-saving operation, I don't know, as I, as I mentioned, a, uh, a humanitarian uh, relief operation of some kind. Uh, that's hard to predict. That's, that's the kind of operational planning that we don't have insights into. But from the strategic point of view, I, f I would find, I would be incredibly surprised if under these circumstances, knowing that Ukraine is a weaker partner so that he can prevail militarily in a direct conflict relatively quickly, uh, that he would abandon now the secessionist project uh, after he has absorbed Crimea, he has raised all this uh, nationalistic patriotic fervor in Russia, and suffer the consequences politically at home. So I think if, if, if we get to that point, uh, you will probably see a direct Russian military invasion uh, of Ukraine. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show, and I'm sure this is not the last time we're going to see you on the Looptest, because number one, we love you as a guest, and number two, this is definitely an ongoing situation. So I look forward to speaking to you speaking with you again in the near future thank you so much chelsea always a pleasure to talk to you and all the best to your listeners keep tuning thank you. okay thank you and likewise on your end it's always a pleasure thank you bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.